Hello and welcome to Social Discourse. I'm Eli. I'm M. I'm Preston. And Simon. Preston chose our topic for today. Preston, would you explain what the topic is? The central theme of today is how religion is used to justify stigmatization of non-believers. And why this is important in the modern day is because how significant religion is to the greater whole. Everyone throughout America has experienced some form of religion either being acted upon them or they act within religion itself. Religion is a foundational principle within the modern day, and that is why it's important to see how religion used to justify stigmatization of others. All right, um, so today we're just gonna go with, we're discussing stigmatization. Stigmatization is a complex combination of society and psychology working to disadvantage individuals using usually through labeling, discrimination, stereotyping, and systemic loss of power. Many religions grow out of cults and many cults rise as branches of religions. Today we will be strictly discussing religion though. Religion is defined as a personal set or institutionalized system of attitudes, beliefs, and practices. Religion can be traced as far back as accurate records hold. Most prominently, we see Islam, Christianity, and Judaism. We've also seen other waves of religion in the U.S., including a recent rise in Wiccan beliefs. Additionally, there are less familiar or known religions, like the Druids, Buddhism, and Hinduism, that are more popular in other parts of the world. Additionally, there are many subdivisions in religions that may be discussed and specified today. Religious stigmatizations reaches into many different regions. Cases are recorded influencing mental health, race, sexuality, and even inter-religious conflicts. We can trace a lot of these conflicts to political movements and rising ideologies. From the Irish divide, the Crusades, and even pressing and ever-pressing Jerusalem conflicts, religious stigmas continue to reach beyond U.S. borders. In the U.S., we specifically see conflicts over abortion, sexuality, sexism, and racism rooted in religion. Religion has also been used to combat stigmas and inequality. Uh, where's the line drawn between religious freedom and discrimination? Well, let's first link the two. When does religious freedom uh, lead to discrimination? Um, so I have a nice, I have two nice definitions right here uh, by the APA. Discrimination is defined as the unfair or prejudicial treatment of people and groups based on characteristics. And freedom is the power or right to speak, act, or think as one wants without hindrance. So in, in like the way I understand it is discrimination is when that freedom starts to be restricted. The way I see it is when religious freedom becomes discrimination, it's restricting other people in the way that they believe, the way they act, everything like that. So. So like a religious group imposing upon non-believers religious uh, law, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Like, for instance, something that's brought up a lot um, in our modernly is abortion. 
and many religions are against abortion for sure. Um, but there's a difference between uh, a lady who is not ready to have a child choosing to keep a child because she believes abortion is wrong and a lady who doesn't want the child not being able to have the, uh, an abortion because religion says it's bad. Uh, I guess uh, what's important to note on that is that the cause, you know, obviously it's not just religion, it's the cause of, yeah. uh, of the strife in abortion. Uh, but I think religion is a very good proxy for group values. Um, and we need, we need group values, right? We want everyone to have their group values. We want people to feel comfortable in their communities. Um, but where does your right to live in the community you want encroach on a person's right to not have a child that they are forced to have? Like, like who, like what's your right to force a, a woman to have a child, so to speak, uh, in this abortion scenario? And, and I think that brings us back to the original question, right? Yeah. Um, what I was going to say in response to that is I still I'm going to requote John Stuart Mill's On Liberty and I'm going to go with his harm principle and his harm principle in essence states that anyone can do anything without interference on their actions or beliefs as long as it doesn't harm another person. Now in the moment right hold on I want to push back on, on John Stuart Mill for a moment. Is this is this harm that's being caused, like long term, or or is the good harm, or is the the positive negative matrix uh, instant harm? You see, uh, he you, he justifies this through utility, and it's whatever gives the greatest benefit to the greatest whole. Mm. So if someone's picking up a burden in the moment to benefit them later, he would agree that that is the proper thing to do. Yes, he he push he encourages competition, in essence. Right. So, how does his idea of harm uh, tie us back into discriminatory beliefs? Um, when we look at uh, the idea of abortion, let's uh, let's continue the topic on abortion since we're talking about it. Um, in essence, he would say it would be okay for a woman to have an abortion as long as that fetus isn't a human being yet or the definition of alive which that definition is really hard to uh come across because none of us are biologists nor do are we medical doctors but that depends on what your definition of a, um, a live human being is so it sounds like john stuart mill at least believes that people who are alive have inherent value correct uh no no, like I said, he based he bases his well, well technically yes you could say they have value, but he bases his whole harm principle theory off of utilitarianism. Okay, that sounds that sounds a little circular. Um, if maybe I'm just hunting for circularity today, um, but it it sounds like John Stuart Mill's like abortions uh, are bad if the if you are killing a human being okay why is killing a human being bad to john stuart mill what if human beings don't have any value what would he say to that wait what do you mean what would like what do you mean by no value well it sounds like that his uh his supposition that 
human beings, uh, if they're they, if if you kill a human being while it's in the womb, then that's bad. Well, why? Well, why? Because then you get rid of that value of humanity. You make it okay to kill another human being. It sets a dangerous precedent. You have to get to the bottom of religious beliefs, and I think this is one of them. A lot of religions believe. One of the foundational pillars of religion is that human beings have inherent value for, or, or their value derives from a deity, right? And so if John Stuart Mill uh, were, were a Christian, I would imagine he would say that human beings have inherent value because they have the divine logos imparted onto them from God. Um, and coming from a secular analysis of it, um, why? Why do we have to have inherent value? Uh, and, and one thing that gets caught up, and hold on, I'm bringing it back, I'm bringing it back, is, is that, uh, <clears throat> so if all these different groups have this idea that human beings have inherent value, right, and it's a common thing among religion, why do we have any strife at all between religions? Um, it's a very important question to ask, but in terms of discriminating, it seems that there is like a juxtaposition here. Like, why are we just, why are we discriminating if we all have inherent value? I oh, I think that a lot of, um, like I I would even say that probably the majority of discrimination comes in the form of microaggressions, rather than these major discriminatory acts. Like we hear about major discriminatory acts in the news all the time because yeah they happen somebody gets fired for being gay somebody gets told to leave because they're not white like we hear about discriminatory acts in a major way a lot of the time but i think microaggressions are far more common and i even think that people don't necessarily recognize that they're committing these microaggressions what what is the problem with microaggressions then right um so oh, this kind of leads into the the next sort of thing when you commit a microaggression although the people who recognize it who who don't who commit it don't always recognize it um the person on the receiving end often does so an example of a microaggression would be like a snide remark from a cashier at a store um, and so the cashier may not necessarily recognize that that commits any sort of harm but those microaggressions actually build up and um, experts from the APA actually say that these smaller, less obvious acts can be just as harmful as the more major acts in the long run. Um, and they can actually lead to uh, these people missing opportunities because of a fear of these microaggressions. Where do we, where do we draw the line with discrimination? Is discrimination inherently uh, purposeful or is can it be um, not purposeful as you're saying with these microaggressions? I don't think uh, discrimination has to be purposeful. Um, when we set in these boundaries, uh, if if we're talking about like abortion, these boundaries that religious people want to put in place are to protect their religious value. They're protecting their moral code. And they want to protect that, and that's perfectly viable. But for people who don't necessarily follow that um, religious code, it's not necessarily them wanting to discriminate against them, but rather protect their own population. It's this idea that we want outsiders to conform to our value, 
even if those outsiders don't necessarily adopt those values. Right. And one thing that I would critique modern religion, uh, a lot of modern Christian sects of religion is trying to save the whole world, or tr so to speak, uh, trying to say that society needs to be an entire way because I think one way. Um, I would definitely just, and even on a state level, if you were to break it down into states, still, uh, a whole state shouldn't bend to the will of a church. Um, one thing that I, I think is notable about uh, Judaism Judaism is that they actively discourage converts, which in itself is a form of discrimination. However, uh, by doing that, they're not trying to impose what they believe on everyone else. They discourage imposing their beliefs on everyone else. And you see, that, like this is where I come with the harm principle coming in. Do what you want as long as you're not imposing it on another person. And let another person join your religion if they want to. Don't try to push them. Don't try to uh, coerce them. Hmm. I would imagine that back, uh, back when religions uh, gained prominence in the United States, you were telling, uh, I can't remember who, but and you were explaining to, I think, me that religions start in small rural areas and then they branch mm -hmm. out from there. Well, back in those small rural areas in like the 1800s, you had to group up to survive, and so you had to follow the way of the tribe. But now we live in a much more affluent society, uh, which it, it allows people, I guess, some more, more leeway to choose what groups they belong to. Mm -hmm. I, Religious stigmas damage the health of those interacting with it. According to the APA, which is the American Psychology Association, um, discrimination can lead to higher stress levels, and chronic stress is linked to physical and mental health problems, such as high blood pressure, anxiety, depression, etc. Um, and uh, even just being a part of a group that is often discriminated against, uh, in on their website they use the LGBT community as an example, um, can lead to anticipatory chronic stress. Um, and so when we're talking about religious stigmas, damaging people, I just immediately thought religious stigmas leading to discrimination um, in my brain. So we can see that that just kind of builds up and some of these can actually lead to like deadly, deadly health issues. You can get heart issues that lead to you not being able to survive. I mean, blood pressure leads to heart attacks sometimes. Right. Um, I think it all breaks down to discrimination, right, to, to some extent. A lot of the harms uh, of religion, if uh, those that exist, I think of, I think of a church, any church, that, that pressures a certain level of performance in life, and if you don't meet that, then you're not in tune with God or, or with the community that you belong to. Uh, there, there are easy examples to grab at, but I'm not right now. But uh, this level of discrimination, I think, does have, like, I get the intent, right, going back to wanting to group up in society and, and live and be prosperous, and to some extent, religion still does that to people, of course. They still help people live. Uh, but I think there's also a lot of internal pressure in religions, especially for young people who haven't quite figured out how they stand in relation 
with uh, religion. Uh, it, I'm pretty sure it's young people who 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 commit the most amount of suicides. Um, and not not to directly blame the church for suicide, but these people are still trying to figure out and understand this idea of the divine and something that's so important and has such a great burden for you to bear that if you don't, then it determines the rest of your eternity. Right? It's such a massive concept, and, and and I don't blame young people for not figuring it out because a lot of adults haven't either. Um, I'm going to draw from anecdotal evidence and self-evidence on how religion has stigmatized and hurt others, and I'll draw from my own mo mother's perspective. Um, she was a single mother, a high school student coming out of, coming from Utah in the dead center in Salt Lake City, and she was raped and became pregnant as a result, and when she had me, she, my father's parents urged her to go see his bishop about it. And the bishop essentially called her chewed up gum and tried to coerce her into giving me up to LDS uh, Family Services, which was a program at the time. And as a result, she ended up becoming stigmatized as a slut and a a used uh, band-aid in essence amongst all of her friends and um, my father's parents, um, my father who raped her, and etc. And even when she went and saw her own bishop, the, the, that bishop did the same thing and called her a slut in front of her and said she would be a terrible mother because she had sex, premarital sex, in high school. I, I've heard similar stories coming from single mothers in, in different religions. I think we expressed that last time. Uh, I think that's, I think the rationale to play devil's advocate is that single mothers pose a burden to society, right? That's the argument. But, but I'd argue that that is less so nowadays and that we must be more tolerant of, of uh, not even tolerant, but more willing to help people in single single family households. Um, uh, it's because we have a greater welfare state now, which is intended to help people in situations like that. What is the burden that single mothers pose on society? I'm, I'm thinking pre, I'm thinking pre welfare state, right? Um, we're still well. Even back then, when my mom had me, we were still a welfare state. We were under. We were under the Bush administration, but we still had uh, food stamps. We still had other welfare programs. Um, like to go like way back. Like I'm talking pre-women's rights. Women weren't able to like work, so like women becoming pregnant, they were literally a burden on everybody. Because um, at that point. Sorry, I just, I have to find a correction. What time period exactly? Because women did work pre-Sarah uh, Grimke sisters, pre-the um, start of abolitionism. Well, just think about through a lot of human history. Women were never the primary breadwinners in an anthropological sense. Uh, okay. Men brought down the mammoths, right? Well, 
Um, <laughs> that depends on what you define as work, because women did go and do agricultural work or like picked right. berries and yeah, stuff right and that. cared for children That's still. Breadwinners. So even even if we're looking back at like the majority of human history, women, like even where if we're looking at the majority of U.S. history, women weren't able to get jobs where they could provide for a household. And there was a point where women couldn't own housing. So if a woman was to get pregnant pre-marriage, she would, one, probably never be able to get married because having a bastard child was such a stain in society. And two, probably have to live with her family for the rest of her life until her dad died and they lost their house because she wouldn't be able to own property. That's where I think the stigmatization of single mothers and getting pregnant before you're married comes from because it was an economic burden at one point. Right, and, and like all economics, we, uh, that behavior had to be disincentivized back then. And I think it's, it's our, how, how certain, I think religion gets this critique a lot is that they have an archaic viewpoint, but, but I would agree with this critique in terms of single motherhood. Uh, and because now we, we live in a society that's so much easier to get help uh, than, than it used to be. You know, just talking about how, uh, just reiterating what was just said by him. So that behavior didn't need to be incentivized, but times have changed. If we think about, like, back to the main topic, like the damage on health, like what M said about anxiety and everything, um, if I were to, like, pull from my own life and everything, I grew up not super religious, but I grew up in the LDS community and everything, and I did go to church for a long time, to the point where when I was coming into my sexuality and I was coming into my own identity, I very much felt that it was a big burden on myself as well as like my whole family. Because I remember at one point, uh, a family member of mine before I came out was like really against gay marriage, like gave me a whole lecture against gay marriage and how it was so wrong. So I just felt very down, like for a majority of my youth, when I was coming into my sexuality and everything, it just very much turned into, I hate myself for this. So it's one of those things that does just burden yourself if you are, if you are like in a religious standpoint. I just want to, I just want to uh, talk about the universality of that because it's, it's not just your anecdotal experience is echoed everywhere i just heard a, a gentleman in my in one of my classes who who is a self-proclaimed roman catholic uh talk about how his religion believes that people who have homosexual feelings need to bear the burden of not acting upon them in order to remain on the path and that's true of different sects of christianity as well so so, so that is this idea of of burdening people for the sake of challenging who they are I mean, I'm not convinced um and I just I just wanted to like echo that I, um while doing research for this I came across a lot of articles about what 
people call internalized homophobia. And it's where people in these religious backgrounds come into their sexuality as being gay or lesbian or trans or whatever. Um, as they come into those feelings, they realize that they're not welcome in their religious community almost, like they don't feel that welcoming anymore. Um, and with that, uh, they kind of come to hate themselves and hate that part of their identity. Um, and there, there were a lot of articles covering that, not just in Christian religions, but in tons of other religions. When you're in uh, LGBT community chat rooms, you see people like, can I be Christian and be gay all the time. This is a comment that comes up all the time when you're in those sort of sections. That's an inter That last question that you mentioned is very interesting because I knew a gay couple back home who were also Lutheran. They were lovely, lovely people to some extent, uh, but they but they were also devoutly religious. I I think in this case it would depend on group each group because each and every congregation is ran differently and every congregation is uh always headed in its different way and like a lot of the times like even within the lds religion a lot of bishops have their own nuances and how they run the church or run their church services and how they conduct their worthiness interviews if they conduct worthiness interviews because a lot recently a lot of lds bishops have uh decided to end the practice and with that being up, I, I actually have an actual instance of this because um, back home we all have our dear friend Carly and she has a brother and her brother is gay and married to a man but is still very, very welcome in her church. And like the way she always talked to me because like I said, I used to be very religious and I stopped being religious, but Carly and I stayed friends and Carly's really religious. She would always tell me that I would always be welcome in her church because her church is very welcoming and always brought up her brother and how everybody just loves her brother, even though he is gay and is married to a man. So it does indeed de depend on like the congregation and the people within the congregation. And instead of the like, religion as a whole so that seems to be the exception not the rule to stigmatization uh stemming from religion towards uh, members of the lgbt community yeah and definitely towards other people as well i just i keep bringing up lgbt you are a valid source yeah i've been very much within it all on that sort of topic. How can religion be used to fight stigmas? For example, Martin Luther King Jr. and his position as a reverend. I disagree with Martin Luther King Jr. as an, as an example. <laughs> How? Why do you disagree with that? My, uh, sorry, I have to. I have to push back on this a little bit because oh. my professor it distinctly notes. Martin Luther King's uh, position as a reverend in the Catholic Church as a as a factor that helped 
bolster the civil rights movement and bolster himself as a leader within the civil rights movement. I do not dispute what your professor said in that fact. I, I don't think he was um, true to his word as a reverend, though. So, oh, are you talking about his uh, numerous affairs? Yeah. So. Okay. Um, With. <laughs> Olympics is a great example of this. Um, the so Eunice Kennedy Shriver, which was the sister of our great old JFK, um, launched this uh, program essentially um, to help uh, raise awareness about uh, in. Intel, intel, intelligence disabilities. Um, she was a devout. I know she's a Christian. I think she's Catholic. That may be wrong, though. Um, but she started this crusade, they call it, um, because in her belief, she believed that everybody deserved to have the quality of life. And so she used this idea to fight back that people with intellectual disabilities deserve to know why they have these intellectual disabilities and also to be treated well. Um, it was to improve the means by which society deals with them. Um, so it was to help them grow essentially. Um, and so they, they use these funds to help kind of fund that idea. Um, and they also just give these people in the Special Olympics that opportunity that they would not have otherwise. So essentially what you're saying is that they kind of based off of, they use the basic values of their religion to try to help other individuals. Yeah, in, in this case, she definitely did, um, along with her brother, you know, JFK, um, to fight back against that. But additionally, there's also um, examples of Christian sects like the Knights of Columbus that fund the Special Olympics. So there's plenty of uh, religions that donate to these ideas of fighting stigmatization and um, inequality through their beliefs. Um, I just have to point out a parallel between your example and the Martin Luther King example. Uh, they're both part of Catholicism. And with Martin Luther King, he, did, he justifies breaking the law and uh, civil disobedience with a God's will. He b basically states that it's this is God's rules. God wills that everyone should be equal. God wills that uh, African-Americans should have the same rights as a white man. And it's God who gives them the power to break these laws. And that's how Martin Luther King uses religion to um, as a basis for the civil rights movement in the 1960s and to base civil disobedience and justify it. We can see this in his letter from Birmingham jail explicitly, which I'm sure all of us have read. I think that's uh, that's notable. Um, and it's also worth noting the universality on this idea of God's will, whether it be God or Allah or something along the lines of dukkha in buddhism as i've learned here um or and i think that we that um that this idea of divine will always comes back to society just because it it fits the bill of something to strive for right 
we need to strive for some idea of perfection. And, and so I think this is a tool used by many, uh, and a profitable one in different ways and a negative one in other ways, uh, to just reinforce the fact that, quote, a political society cannot endure without a supreme will somewhere, end quote. That was a uh, U.S. Supreme Court justice. Uh, I think it was in U.S. v. Curtis Wright Export Group, uh, I'm not sure. Uh, but I think it just echoes the point that societies tend to rely on this idea of divine will very, very heavily. And so I, I agree with this idea of divine will being a positive means for um, positive thing in society, but that power is also destructive. Mm -hmm. Right? I think of 9-11, yeah, and I think of the converse of all this. You know something motivated uh, by religious extremism. Another example would be of like fighting these stigmatizations is the fact that um, in the past two years, I believe, Pope Francis, you know, like has come forward and has been very active on including the LGBT community. Surprise. They're talking forward and talked more about uh, the LGBT community. And his exact quote is because God doesn't make mistakes. So like just involving other people and involving um, this usually like put out community within the Catholic community, just accepting them has just become, become leaps and bounds better for like religious LGBT people, people because they're not feeling stigmatized, I guess. Like I have another quote here from this article I read. It says, LGBT people exa exist in every community and religion. However, religion can often be the area of life that people find the most difficult to reconcile with their identity. Some people will say that LGBT people can't exist in faith communities. The, Pope reports, the Pope's reported words are a striking affirmation that LGBT people of faith belong in the church and in religious communities. So it's just that um, involvement and acceptance from like the head of this Catholic religion that really is fighting the stigma against LGBT people within like Christian communities. That's oh, amazing. I uh, I like that he's being more accepting. It kind of kind of diminishes the hypocrisy of the child sex scandals, I guess, in some twisted way. Um, but I don't like what he says about, I disagree with what he says about God doesn't make mistakes. Not to say that God makes mistakes, but this idea of, of accepting everything all the time, right? Like, it's very important to be accepting, but we also want to be able to tell people when they're wrong. Like, you don't want a six-year-old to forever remain a six-year-old. You have, you have to, when they hit somebody, you got to tell them, like, no, it's not okay, sort of thing. Um, and I think this devolves back down to, this boils down back to the original intent of, of religion is trying to decide what's a positive behavior and a negative behavior. Um, and so while like, that acceptance is great, 
I, I think the argument that God doesn't make mistakes is not true uh, in a secular application to society, that we can't just be all accepting of all people at all times. Um, I definitely think that, although you're right, um, I think that the circumstances surrounding the quote is what made the quote empowering rather than this idea that because he said God doesn't make mistakes is um, flawed. Um, I think because the way he was saying it is to a gay man, he said, God loves you and made you like this. I think that's what made the quote empowering rather than God doesn't make mistakes. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I like that application a lot better. It's more congruent with uh, with his actions, I think. So. Which, um, this kind of, this, I'm just kind of backtracking a little bit. Um, how is it, does religion and, um, this is just a question based off of, like, American history and throughout all of known humanity. Is it religion that defines natural rights, or are natural rights just purely natural? Uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau said, Man is born free, yet everywhere he is in chains. And I think, this is how I interpret it, and it's, it's a different position than what you'll probably hear, is that rights don't exist, and we don't have any, but we have to enumerate them because we like certain things a lot. Which, which sounds very basic, Who's, but... Who, who, who coined that? Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Is that what Rousseau said? That, no, 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 no. You're saying the man is born free. Mm -hmm. Who defines our rights, then? You're saying that we have to define them ourselves. Who coined that idea? Was it Rousseau that coined the idea that we have to define our rights? I think, I think... I, um, I think it was part of the Enlightenment movement. Uh, I, I think of John Locke in response to this question, uh, life, liberty, and property uh, as being natural natural rights. Um, and I think he makes an argument for the mere existence of natural rights in his essays on human understanding or something like that. Um, but I'm not sure. I don't think there's a particular person who quoted them. Uh, but I think it's important to, to, to bring this idea of rights back and natural rights back to um, the foundations, which is what you're trying to do, obviously. Uh, I think that natural rights can 100% exist without a divine being. Right? It just makes, uh, it makes sense that we enumerate certain actions or behaviors or concepts as being the most important uh, as humans. That means we've reasoned and rationalize our, ourselves to to a to a defining moment where we can do that. Uh, I think it's easier for a lot of people to tell a story behind it, to explain these divine uh, these uh, enumerated rights. You, you tell a story to explain the rights instead of just saying it outright textbook style. You know, it draws people in. Uh, and I think it's also very easy to say, well, because God said so. Uh, that's a that's a very easy thing that keeps society going it probably wasn't easy to to come across or to to spread but now that it's now that the horse is out of the barn mm. to defer to what other people have said mm. how can religious-based stigmas be addressed without <laughs> damaging religious religious freedom oh that's a great question 
person. Wait, did did it just blink blink out? Sorry, did someone say my name? I did, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, well, on this case, um, with Mill, I'm gonna go with Mill again. Um, though I disagree with there being two, I think there's three ways you can limit individuals' actions. Um, Mill says it's justified to interfere with anyone's actions as long as if it's harming another individual. Harming immediately and or um, over time, utility, it's based on utility. So in this case, if you are hurting another person's liberty and you are interfering with their personal sovereignty and their free expression, their free action, it is the government's will or society's will or a, they are justified in interfering with your actions and regulating your actions. So religious freedom does not trump another person's personal sovereignty. Wow, that, uh, that's a big statement. I don't think it's possible to have those two things exist uh, practically. Um, and ironically, I think a good critique of John Stuart Mill's practical moral reasoning is its actual practicality, um, which we've talked about a bit earlier. But uh, in terms of a solution to all this, I don't think it's government regulation. I, I definitely don't. I, I want to echo personal sovereignty in a different light. Uh, my advice is that it, the redemption, uh, somebody said this, this is a good quote, that the redemption of the world is through the individual and that if they live in a world or a community that is, say, persecuting them, and then I think that they have the power to enlighten themselves and get out if they're, if they're able to, if they're fortunate enough to, to act on their reason. But I do think they have that ability to reason their way out. And I, I think just having a conversation with about your religious leaders, like, like, like if you were to treat your, I don't know, worthiness interview as, uh, as, like buying a used car <laughs> where it's oh you know this this guy this car's got leather seats it, it's got good miles but you know then the, the engine might have some problems so, so let's talk about what i can expect from you as a seller and you can expect from me as a buyer i think you have to have that relationship uh, elaborated upon you know uh, mm. in, in a marketplace fashion that, and, and if they refuse to, they just say, no, our church doesn't do that, find a different church. In my personal opinion, uh, the solution to this would be to keep religious-based value. So these specific religious ideas, that is where these laws and rules come about uh, with, with no real futuristic implications so specifically ones about like the lgbt community and abortion things that do have their basis in religious value out of um legislation so don't regulate them um and then if it does become an issue with one religion 
being all powerful or regulating somehow, uh, then the government steps in. Kind of a if that ever happens kind of idea. I got it now. Okay. And this is uh, hitting at home a little bit. Let's say you are born to a church that you are financially um, dependent on. But this church says, and you're gay, and this church says being gay is bad. Uh, that was just funny how you slipped that in there. <laughs> and and, uh, okay. They discriminate you, and your personal sovereignty is taken away, but you're economically dependent on the church. Does the church know you're gay? Uh, yes. Okay, so... They're no longer giving me money, so to speak? No, they give you money still. Because oh. you're part of the church, as long as you don't act on it. Mm, but I really want to act on it, don't I? Yes. <laughs> what you are. Uh, <laughs> question. Ah. Well. Why are you financially dependent on the church and not the state? Church welfare programs. Okay. Well, I would imagine you're dependent on both. Yeah, but in, in this particular instance, why do you have to be particularly dependent on the church's welfare and not just on the state? Like, what makes that absolutely impossible? Because um, you this have is a kid. A, what? Because you have a kid. Yes. What? Still, what makes it financially impossible? We have plenty of programs. Well, it, what you're trying to t take and p take out my theoretical example here by talking about reality. I'm trying to talk <laughs> about... <laughs> you asked, what do you do? Well, why do I have to be dependent on the church? Why can't I say, I'm not... <laughs> why do you have to be dependent on the church? Let's just say these welfare programs won't give you money because you don't know about them. And you don't have the capabilities of knowing about it. Okay. 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 So, so, so let's humor the hypothetical. Uh, and at that point, you have to weigh your financial, what you should do with your finances uh, in relation to. Let's say you are in oh. a. Let's say you are in a, an apartment with about a one thousand dollar rent in the city, and you can't move anywhere else because you don't have a car. Right. Okay. So. This is me. <laughs> this is how I take this. Oftentimes, it, not often, throughout human history, it has always been very heavily correlated that relationships, sexual or otherwise, tend to grow uh, in relation to wealth. For example, like 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 the, the day you make ten million dollars is the day you just got fifty new cousins and twenty best friends from high school, <laughs> uh, and I take this big hypothetical as centered on on personal responsibility. How should the individual act, right? Because because the church isn't going to change, right? No one else sounds like they're going to help them. Uh, I would implore the individual 
to do whatever they could to become financially independent uh, and then leave the church. <laughs> often, it, it makes sense, though, if you think about it. Like, like uh, when you're young, you have sexual drives, but you can't really act on them, you know, because you don't have your own house and your own means of getting taking the personality. Like, like relationships grow with age, and their complexity grows with age. And uh, we're able to have more fruitful relationships when we have the means to, to do things in the world. If I can't do anything, if I'm worried about making next rent or starving, I'm, I'm not going to go out on a date with anybody. So I'm not going to be concerned with I'm not going to be concerned with sexuality, which is, you know, it's, it's hard to do sexuality because it's a biological drive. Right. It's, it's an impulse that you can't sometimes control. Well, you can hopefully you can't control it, but like you feel it. So I think that the individual has to um, become financially independent. I'm not sure if that violates the hypothetical or not, but I would implore um, them to do whatever they could to, to get more money and then be themselves. Because I think most people have to go through that process of getting money in order to be who they want to be. Let's say a great big uh, minority of people are being oppressed by a church within a state. And the church has control of the state government, and the federal government has the power to act on it, but it acts on it and try to prevent things or these people from being oppressed further. That's where it comes back to uh, my own idea of the solution. When these religions become a big problem, the government may need to step in. Yeah, it's like the fact that the South was racially segregating and things like that throughout um, the Reconstruction period, right after the Civil War, right? We had all of that segregation, all of that inequality, and all of that disputing conflict in the South, okay? The government stepped in because it was necessary. I don't think the government needs to step in until there is a need though being like the government should set these rules for the government for the for religions is a is a little forward thinking but it's also backward tracking where do you define it to be necessary how do you define necessary when a religion starts to become fully imposing and discriminatory of people of a whole like when they actually start to restrict people's abilities when a people's abilities and opportunities are restricted because of religion we can then say yeah they need to step in and stop this right 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 i think you're exactly right to some extent uh it, it's just that one you, you then have to codify everything because because in a religion you restrict people's ability to you know drink but nobody's complaining about that to some extent so, which is why I, I kind of run away from this idea of having another group regulate another group. I think it relies on the individual because all groups tend towards tyranny. Um, so, I think you mentioned religion being regulating people's drinking. Really, I don't think it's religion in itself shouldn't be the one regulating people's drinking. Religion should tell you yeah, you shouldn't drink, but you should still have the free will, the agency, it's a word religious people like to use, to 
to choose whether or not you drink or you smoke or you have sex before marriage or you follow your gay inhibitions like that's something that's a personal agency choice that i myself in every religious sect i've ever looked at agency is a primary value that a lot of them push but not necessarily all of them follow um simon so you're talking about tyranny from a certain group and you're talking about tyranny from I, let me just clarify you're talking about tyranny from the government correct it's not about tyranny from anybody tyranny by so then what do we do why do we let this individual choose this if this individual just is incapable of doing it let's how why don't we who is allowed to change things the government or do we just let the tyranny of the majority religion continue its course um, the government tyranny a majority i think that actually tyranny doesn't have to be an option at all um we've seen revolutionary movements run by minorities throughout history so there's no reason to say that this minority couldn't prove and move change even in your theoretical situation there's no reason to say the minority couldn't move change yeah you don't remember harriet tubman <laughs> and that doesn't even have to lead to tyranny of government it is it who is making the law is it the government or is it these minorities neither even if the government makes the law why does it say that government making law has to lead to tyranny yeah that's the question i'm asking no you asked do we want to choose government tyranny or we <laughs> to choose the tyranny of the majority yes but what i'm trying to get simon to is how is it tyrannical for the government to make laws to help these people who are being oppressed it's not unless the government takes over and does too much with it that's simon's point if the government steps in before the change is called for it will be called tyranny because it'll be the tyranny of the government restricting religious freedom right okay there's so there's a there's a there's a religious debate in the in different ideas of law right uh, it, it's in terms of how it, important it, it weighs on our society. I'm not saying that law in itself from the government is tyrannical. I, I'm saying that power dynamics in any social group will tend towards tyranny and exclusion and power hungriness and resource grabbing. Um, what I what this, the exception, the American experiment that occurred was that we are neither a nation of tyranny of the majority or of the government, rather we are a nation of ideals. And these ideals in themselves are have religious parallels, right? We have a Bill of Rights, which is, there's 10 of them, you know? We also have, uh, Christians have the 10 commandments, right? They have these ideals. And so all these issues come about from the enforcement of certain ideals right uh the idea of sharia law in the middle east is is based on different practices and ideals held by you know, people in islam uh but it's their application from the majority 
or from the government that goes awry. And so that's why it's always on the individual to to recognize the tyranny and do what they can for themselves and, the, and then the community uh, to free themselves from that. Uh, I, I'm just, I guess I'm not clear on how you're defining tyrannical in this sense. sense. Where does the line get drawn? When do, when do, when do groups tend towards tyranny? Yes, when is it, when do groups become tyrannical? When they start lying about themselves. When they start, when they start saying, oh, this is definitely what God wants. God definitely wants jihad or something like that. And when, without, uh, when they start to deny everything else except their own beliefs. Or when, when, um, when, a, when a football team group of first string players, they, they start to say that, that only we play, only the first stringers play, even if we're injured, the second stringers won't be allowed to play. Um, or if it's the government that says, you know what, this law is correct because we are the government, we are Congress, it's going to get passed. And by that extension, it, it's, it's correct. It's a fallacious argument. And, and it all comes from ignoring uh, either ignorance by choice or ignorance of pure ignorance of the reality. Uh, Socrates, they're okay. This isn't Socrates' argument, but this is an argument that is attributed to being Socrates, that his idea of freedom is rooted in self-reflection. Uh, and when you start lying about, let's say, oh, wonderful example is Soviet Russia, who says, hey, communism's working so well, we definitely aren't relying on slave labor uh, for most of our goods and services. We're definitely not relying on any gulags, and we're definitely not imprisoning any of our own citizens to make our economy just barely function to please the elites. They're not acknowledging the reality of the situation. And, and, you know, it's a whole different scope of trying to identify the reality. But freedom and tyranny uh, are heavily reliant on honesty. But you're begging the question, how do we know when people are lying? Right. Yeah, yeah. I, I just... Um, <clears throat> uh, I just said that that's a whole scope in itself. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm not entire. That's a wonderful question. I'm not. I'm not prepared for that. You know, okay. I I did list some examples earlier. Um, let they not suffice, because they sh you know it's not all encompassing. But uh, that's that's a very good question. What constitutes truth? Because that begs the question of is there truth? So uh -huh. now we're off the beaten path. Anyone want to talk about anecdotal um, experience with religion? I tried really hard to be religious <laughs> for like two years, but it was for all the wrong reasons. And I, it never clicked and I was just waiting for it to click. And so I think some people have to admit that they don't know if God exists and try not to force it down their own throats, let alone other people's. Um. Uh -huh mainly talked about my experience with religion. Um, I had a really good experience with religion the first portion of my life. Um, I was inducted into our great home religion um, when I was 10 and 
I loved it. I mean, I did. I felt at peace until I started realizing that I didn't fit. Um, my parents weren't married. That's a big no-no. Um, and I liked girls, and that was a big no-no. Um, and, and that actually led to the biggest rift between me and my best friend ever. I told her I didn't want her around my friends. I didn't want to hang out with her at school. I didn't want to live in the same house as her anymore. And I just didn't want her to hang out with me because my friends accepted me and I didn't know how she would take that. Um, uh, but I was lucky to grow up where I did. Um, and it actually turned out that they were incredibly accepting people. I mean, I made it a little awkward the first few months, but um, her mom is like a second mom to me and she just was completely like, you're still welcome in my house. We'll always love you no matter what. So that was my experience. A majority of my experience with religion has been generally negative. Um, first off, my mom being ostracized by her former Mormon community. Um, then ostracization by my friends when they found out that I was non-religious and of a, sing uh, a child of a single mother back in elementary school. And that had a whole heap of bullying on of itself because every time someone mentioned god i was like who the heck's god and it i i've always had doubt on this idea of a supreme figure even when i was in elementary school when people talked about god and jesus and jesus dying for my my sins i just did not i just couldn't fathom an idea of a individual totality um, I didn't think of it in that sense. I more so doubted it and it was just like, this kid's lying to me. I felt like people were lying to me every time they talked about um, God and how he would help me and how I would feel him in my soul or something like that. And I just didn't like it. I didn't like that idea of being controlled. So I have always doubted religion. I've always... Um, had generally negative effects and then but once i came here i'm i've been exposed to evangelicalism i've been exposed to actual catholicism a professor that explicitly studies catholicism and how it relates to um, democracy and i'm not religious i've i'm probably never will be religious i'm agnostic i doubt there will ever be knowledge of a god and i doubt that we will ever see a god and therefore i could uh, i'm borderline borderline lining uh atheist so with that being said um i don't have a lot of experience with religion but i've been i'm taking a mormonism in american culture class next semester and i've been talking to my uh, catholic professor a lot more often they're just kind of delve into it a little bit more and just kind of study it because of it's pretty significant in terms of political science and philosophy and uh, American culture. Uh, religious people like to say everything happens for a reason and that is one phrase I will always call bullshit on. Right, so there, there, there is a secular component to that 
saying as well. But um, definitely. Are you talking about determinism? Yes, I am. <laughs> you can also suck it, Simon. <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, there's a cause for every event. Like, cause as in something made that person do something. Yeah, yeah, there's a cause for every event, but not everything happens for a reason. I hate that phrase. You and me and yeah, him yeah, talking yeah. about it. That is God's will, right? Yeah. Yeah, the whole God's will thing. Yeah, it's the Epicurean paradox. It's um, God is um, all-powerful, God is all-benevolent, evil exists. You can't reconcile those thoughts. So this has been our conversation. I'm Eli. <laughs> I'm Em. I'm Preston. And I'm Simon. See you next week.